I'm Deborah Becker, in for Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Amid talks about a possible truce in the war between Israel and Hamas, we want to have a conversation this hour about how two writers with different viewpoints are processing the conflict. We're sitting down today with Israeli writer Yossi Klein-Halevi and Arab writer R.F. Georgie. Halevi's author of the book Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. He's also a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. He's joining us from Jerusalem. Welcome, Yossi, to One Point. Well, thanks so much for having me. And R.F. Georgie is author of the book Absolution, a Palestinian-Israeli love story. He's joining us from California. Welcome, Georgie, to One Point. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So the two of you have been corresponding by email for years, but you, you've never met or spoken to each other until now. So we're very honored that we are able to broadcast your first conversation. So thank you. Thank you, indeed. But but let's let's go back to the beginning of your first correspondence. Georgia, you were first to reach out. You sent an email in 2018. Uh, would you mind reading a little bit of that email? Sure. I said, uh, I must congratulate you. The world in general and those of us from the Middle East need people like you. People who have a vision which goes beyond the immediate trappings of hate, blame and counter-blame, and the projection of our own shortcomings onto others. And you see, uh, when you received that email, what did, what did you think? How did you react? Well, first of all, I, I just have to say, Georgie, I'm so moved to actually hear your voice mm. reading, your, reading that letter. <laughs> so uh, I'm just, uh, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. The, that the feeling is mutual, Yossi. It's, it's wonderful <laughs> to hear your voice. So, you know, Deborah, when... when I got this email from Georgie. I, I had just published um, my book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. And Georgie uh, is not Palestinian. He's an Egyptian-born uh, Arab-American writer. And I was just overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed, first of all, by his generosity of spirit, his, his open heart, and his capacity for empathy to both sides, which is so rare. Usually you choose a side and and you barricade yourself into that position. Uh, and here was an Arab writer responding to my book, telling me that he was touched by my attempt to reach out. And I felt that when, when I got his letter, I felt the project had already been vindicated, just, just receiving that letter. Hmm. made it worthwhile. And Georgie, what do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, you do me too much honor, uh, Yossi. I, I would like to say a, a few words about the book hmm. um, because I had a chance to reread it again a couple of days ago. And uh, it has nothing to do with the conflict. It's, it's the, the literary style, Yossi, the, the lyricism in your work um, and, the, and the compassion that comes through your work, I, I thought was... Uh, very powerful, and and that's what moved me. Uh, the the way you've talked about you know the yearning for the for the other side, right? That we want to be neighbors, uh, that we don't want to be adversaries anymore, and that you you know you say towards the end of the book you know that is your fervent hope that you invite them into your home, and I think there's nothing more profound than that. Mm. Georgie, why did you decide that you wanted to write to Yossi? 
because honestly, it 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 touched me in 2014 when I wrote uh, Absolution. Um, and by the way, it took me four years of research, as if I was doing maybe a, a couple of uh, PhDs. <laughs> it took me four years to do the research, not just on the events of the Middle East and the history, uh, but on the biographies of major figures. And writing Absolution was a cathartic experience for me because I had to put myself in the Jewish perspective, narrative. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was not easy, but I'm glad I did it. Right. And, and it's actually, Absolution is actually about doing just that, right? Immersing yep. yourself yep. in a different perspective and how Absolutely. that might result in change. Yes. And then, I mean, if I have a minute later, if you wish, but I'd like to uh, discuss the, the story behind the novel. Oh, yeah. Because it's just as interesting, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I just want to first just make sure we establish, you know, that, that the two of you uh, have not had a conversation until this point. And I want to talk a little bit yeah. about yeah. How, that com how this relationship started, and, and then we'll talk about some of your work. So, so I wonder, you know, Yossi, you've welcomed feedback uh, about your writing from folks, and you've actually published some of the reaction, and we'll get to that a little bit later in the program as well. But but I wonder, you know, was there something about Georgie's correspondence with you that stood out? And when you tell uh, your family and friends about your correspondences, the correspondence and relationships that have developed uh, since your book, what, what do they say? What's their reaction? Well, first, in terms of uh, what um, what I responded to in, in, in Georgie's response was I, I, I received many responses. I, I, the book was translated into Arabic and placed online for free downloading. So I, I, I got responses from Palestinians, from people across the Arab world. But what was really in some ways singular about George's response was was his capacity for empathy, not only with the the human stories of both sides. In in, in a way, that's easy. I mean, it's I, I I wish it were, but it's it's easier than developing empathy with the historical narratives of each side mm. and understand and understanding the the legitimacy, the indigenousness of both peoples. Uh, from within their own stories, and that's that's what really stood out for me uh, in, with Georgie's letter. And then, of course, I read uh, I, I read his novel Absolution, and and Georgie, I just recently uh, reread it as well, and uh, and and that same um, love of these two peoples, these two tormented tormenting peoples uh, that, uh, that are stuck with each other and can't, can't seem to, to recognize the other's legitimacy. And here's, here's this Arab writer who's, who's an outsider and an insider simultaneously. This conflict is, as, as, he, as he wrote to me, this conflict was not, not strange to him. He, he grew up with this conflict mm. uh, and yet wasn't directly involved, but chose not only to immerse himself in the conflict, but to immerse himself in both sides. And just look at what's happening to the discourse today and around the West, and, and you can appreciate 
how rare that capacity is to keep your heart open to both sides. Right. And I think this is a good time, Georgie, for you to talk a little bit about absolution. Uh, and it is a love story, uh, as, as Yossi mentioned. But, but tell us about where this novel came from for you. Yes, absolutely. Um, it was 1985, and I was um, at the University of California at San Diego, UC San Diego. Hmm. And um, I was walking on campus one day, and I, I met this uh, red-haired, red-haired hmm. Palestinian girl. And um, I th- I, to be honest, I thought she was Swedish or something, or Northern European. Hmm. And I asked, I asked her something, and it uh, turns out she's Palestinian. And um, I didn't know a soul there, Deborah, in San Diego. So her and her family uh, showed me such kindness and such warmth that I was overwhelmed by it. And um, at the same time, uh, I attended a course on um, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, uh, which was taught by the Israeli professor, a visiting professor, Jacob Goldberg. And uh, I also belong to an Arab organization there. These lectures, right, with the professor, Deborah, were in many ways, they were just a, a conflict zone. Uh, the, the Arab group behind, standing behind me in the class, and it was standing only, right? People who didn't even hmm. register for the course. It was standing room in the auditorium. And they pushed me, oh, you have to challenge what he's saying. And so I thought I was articulate and clever, uh, where in reality I was naive and stupid. Uh, but, you know, uh, how could you say this, Professor? And throughout the whole process, the Professor uh, Goldberg, uh, he was um, calm and, and wonderfully kind. And uh, I decided to, I didn't stay long at San Diego, I decided to transfer to Berkeley. Hmm. And before I left, he took me aside and he said, Georgie, uh, you are brilliant. Your mind works very sharply. Okay, thank you. Uh, he, uh, and he told me, if you truly want to understand the conflict, read other perspectives, read Jewish perspectives. Then you have a balance. So as a naive, as I say, person, in my mind at the time, I dismissed it and went on to Berkeley. Hmm. And it was at Berkeley that I started to read, consume, actually, whatever I can get on Jewish history, uh, Jewish literary tradition, uh, the, the Holocaust, literature that followed the Holocaust, all the way to our present time. And when you get that much reading done, absorbing other perspectives, you can't help but change your own perspective in regard to a people that were X number of years earlier, an enemy. Hmm. And, that, and, that, and then decades later, uh, all of what he said to me, uh, I had to acknowledge him because it changed me. And so uh, Absolution was inspired by this red-haired Palestinian girl and uh, Professor Jacob Goldberg, who went on, by the way, became an advisor to Prime Minister Ehud Barak, hmm. you know, after, yeah. And, and the book is being made into a television series, correct? Yes, the director, um, Iran Rickless, your viewers, uh, your listeners might uh, have seen maybe The Lemon Tree. He's famous for that movie. But he's going to adapt it to an eight-hour television series. All right. Well, uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll continue our conversation in a moment. We're discussing the unexpected friendship between an Arab and Israeli writer and how writing might help find humanity in the ongoing conflict in the Middle East. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. 
Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. We're discussing the unexpected friendship between an Arab and Israeli writer and how writing might help find humanity in the conflict in the Middle East. Today, our guests are Israeli writer Yossi Klein-Halevi. His latest book is called Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. He's also a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Also with us, Egyptian-American author R.F. Georgie. He's author of the book Absolution, a Palestinian-Israeli love story. And, and gentlemen, uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, Georgie's book. We're going to get to yours in a minute, Yossi, but I think we need to address first October 7th and uh, the Hamas attack on Israel. And and one email uh, that, Yossi, you sent to, to Georgie last month read, and I'm quoting here part of it, it's, it's frankly impossible for me at this moment to be in any mode other than defending Israel from the hatred that's spreading around the world. My goal at this moment, along with almost every Israeli Jew, is victory over Hamas. I need your voice, along with others, to remind me that I have other commitments that go beyond the Jewish people, and I ask for your patience. Can you tell me, uh, Yossi, how has October 7th affected your writing and your correspondence at this point? You're right there. You can, you can see things firsthand. Uh, tell me what you're experiencing. It's, it's really hard to know where to begin. Mm. Um, in, in, in some sense, the rest of the world has, has moved past October 7th uh, into the next phase of the war and the, the overwhelming misery and, and rising uh, death toll in Gaza uh, is, uh, is it's certainly uh, understandable that the world's uh, attention would be focused there. But in Israel, we haven't begun to absorb October 7th. O- October 7th shattered so many fundamental assumptions uh, that we Israelis had about uh our security, our strength. Um, We always knew that we lived with a certain amount of vulnerability as the lone non-Arab, non-Muslim state for thousands of kilometers around us, this conflict. uh, We've always experienced this conflict uh, as a regional war and not just uh, Israel and, and the Palestinians. But what happened on October 7th was a kind of a a death blow 
to our faith in, in, in our ability to defend ourselves. Our seemingly weakest enemy delivered the worst blow uh, in Israel's history. Uh, the whole premise of Israel is that Jews would never die helpless in this country. That was the promise of Israel to the Jewish people, creating a safe refuge. And over a thousand of our citizens died in a state of helplessness in, in the most grotesque ways that Jews anywhere in the world have ever been murdered. But this happened within the borders of a sovereign Jewish state. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the first shock. The, the second realization was that what was exposed on October 7th was a near-fatal weakness. And in the Middle East, if, you do, if Israel doesn't maintain a credible military deterrence, then the other um, enemies on our borders, Hezbollah, Syria, Iranian the Iranian Revolutionary Guards who have established bases in Syria. Uh, we are surrounded by enemies that are like-minded with Hamas. And if we don't manage to maintain our deterrence, we don't have a future in the long term in this, in this country. And for that reason, that realization is why over 90% of Israeli Jews support this war, including almost the entire Israeli left. And I can't remember the last time we were in a situation like this, where there was such unanimity of purpose in a country that doesn't agree about anything. 90% of Israelis can't agree on anything. And to have that level of, of, of unanimity uh, is, I think, indicative of the, uh, the realization that almost all Israeli Jews share, that this is one of those existential moments uh, in Jewish history. And I, don't, I don't want to debate with you exactly what's happening here in the response. What I do want to talk about is because this was such an important moment for Israel, how does that affect your writing, the writing of someone who said, I want to understand my neighbor, I want to find common ground, I support a two-state solution, when something like what you've called, you know, a death blow, um, when something like that happens, what does that do to, to you and to your writing? How does, how is it affected? It forced me to focus on issues that I would prefer not to write about, uh, which is survival. Mm -hmm. uh, I, would, I would much rather be devoting uh, my energies to, to a vision for the future, uh, to seeking people of goodwill with whom to, to amplify our small voices. And that's the commitment that I hope to return to when this war is over. But uh, right now, I feel, in, in, to be honest, that a part of me, maybe the best part of me, is frozen, mm -hmm. is, is stunned. And that's also why I was so touched when, when Georgie wrote his op-ed, and, and we didn't discuss it, but uh, he, 
he, I wrote an op-ed about how the Jews around the world uh, are feeling alone at this moment, misunderstood. And, and Georgie wrote an op-ed in response, uh, which was beautiful. My, my, my piece was called uh, The Lonely People of History, which was about this, this deep sense of Jewish aloneness that we've carried as a people really for thousands of years. And Georgie's response was uh, to write about the Palestinians as the disposable people of history. Well, and, uh, Georgie, and he tell wrote us, it in his, you know, yeah. in his characteristically humane and, and empathic way. Uh, Georgie, tell us a little bit about that. Why did you write it, and, and what was the goal of that? Yeah, the, uh, before I say that, I just want to say, uh, if, if you'll forgive me, something on October 7th. Yes, yes, certainly. Because um, it, it touched me as well. Uh, you know, and I wrote in the op-ed that there is no moral framework that can accommodate the vile, vicious, and disgusting atrocities that were carried out on that date. And, I, and I'm always impressing upon my Arab friends, Palestinian friends, criticism of the Israeli government, they are not mutually exclusive for condemning the atrocities of October 7th. You see, a lot of people think, well, if I admit to the, the moral, you know, uh, vileness of this act, it's going to weaken my position. You know, reality doesn't work like this. We're talking about human beings mm. that were slaughtered, you know, raped, and so on. And so as someone from the Arab world, you have to be honest with yourself, right? Uh, I wrote the article in response to Yossi's because it struck me that when you look at the scale of destruction in Gaza, regardless of what your political or ideological views are, these are human beings. And I want to add something, by the way. Uh, you know, I should let listeners should know that you know I've been influenced. Josie and I have disagreements on Edward Said. I, I've been influenced largely by Edward Said, and on the other side by Abba Ibn, right? Uh, you know, the former ambassador to Israel, okay. ambassador to the United Nations, and foreign minister, and so on. In any event, when you look at television, the television screen, and you see that scale of destruction, what happens is we in the West look at that and our heart you know, goes out to these people. But ask yourselves this question. Aren't these people treated as an amorphous mass of undifferentiated misery? They are not fully formed human beings with, with narratives of their own. But when you look at, and I wish it would be done this way, the Israelis and their suffering, and their suffering is important, but they're presented to us in the media, right, fully formed. And that's the way it should be. These are people who have lives, who have families. But that is not accorded to the other side. And I'm not pinpointing, you know, individual networks and all that. I'm talking, you know, it's a kind of cultural criticism that, that the Palestinian people for a long time have been disposable in a way. And this is an opportunity, uh, Yossi, to unfreeze. And I know it takes time, you see, but it's only when we're on the pre precipice, uh, precipice of destruction that we can act. So I, I um, it's it's good to be able to disagree 
Georgie, because it uh, <laughs> it makes the uh, the interaction, I think, uh, more grounded in, in our uh, our reality. And my strong sense is that the Palestinians in the past, and and certainly the Palestinian narrative, uh, were both treated as abstractions uh, by much of the Western media. I don't think that that's true anymore. Uh, it's certainly not true for me. I I have. Palestinian friends. I've I've, I've engaged. I've spent uh, a lot of time in Palestinian society. And I have a great deal of of empathy for the Palestinian narrative. I think that that, uh, the tragedy of this conflict is that this is a a struggle between right versus right. Uh, If it wasn't right versus right, it would be much easier to solve. It would be much easier conflict to uh, to to disentangle, but it's precisely because you're dealing with two very compelling narratives that uh, that makes this so such such a brutal conflict. Uh, on the Israeli side, there is more and more a feeling that we're becoming an abstraction. Certainly, uh, in uh, progr- in the progressive West, we are not being seen anymore. And so, for example. Uh, October seventh, uh, if it's if it's recognized at all in progressive circles, it's seen as okay. One more tragedy. Tragedies happen in war. Maybe they were rapes. Maybe they weren't rapes. What we experienced on October seventh was atrocity as a deliberate strategy, as a premeditated act of war. And Hamas fighters, we know this, went into went across the border with the intention of mass rape, with the intention of dismembering, cutting off limbs. And the purpose was to terrorize Israelis, to convince us that we have no future in this land, and we might as well just flee. And of course, the Israeli response when we're, when, and that's really the Jewish psyche, when we're confronted with that level of hatred and hostility, our response is to pull together and defend ourselves. What What do you think would help ground you in this, Yossi? Um, is it Is it correspondence uh, with with folks like Georgie? Um, what What would help? Absolutely, absolutely. What What I think that what what both sides need to hear is is a measure of empathy. And and Georgie is right. There's the empathy has become politicized, and before anything else, one needs to be able to feel the horror of what we're doing to each other, and leaving aside leaving aside the question for a moment of uh, of of how each side perceives the conflict, just on that level. And that's why Georgie is is so important to me. He he forces me. Back into my 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 primal humanity, and what I need as an Israeli is some acknowledgement that we are in an impossible situation, where we are dealing with a genocidal regime on our border that has already proven not only its genocidal intent but its genocidal capacity. October 7th 
was a miniature experience of genocide. And, you know, Israel is being accused now of genocide. And I hear that, and I just want to scream. Because there is a profound moral difference between deliberate assault on civilians and the tragedy of civilian deaths in war. A deliberate assault is what defines war as barbarism, and an accidental killing of civilians is what defines war as tragedy. And if that moral distinction can't be made, and then one can argue whether whether the price is still too high, whether Israel is fighting this war as, as justly as it should. But that basic distinction of one side, the Hamas, whose goal is to maximize civilian casualties and to, and to create terror through atrocity, and on the Israeli side, to, 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 not, to, to, to not maximize civilian casualties and to, to really try to fight a war under the most impossible circumstances. There is no way to fight a war in Gaza without tragically involving civilians. The place is too intimate. It's too small. Hamas hides behind human shields. They've used hospitals as command centers, schools, mosques. That's Hamas's mode of operation. You know, we've got about a, so, a minute and, left before we have to take a yeah. break. So I just, I just want to make, I just wonder, and and you know, hold that thought. But I, I just wonder, you know, both of you have been writing about this for a long time, trying to understand the other's perspective and find some kind of middle ground. Is this point, this death blow, as you call it, Yossi, and I want to hear from Georgie as well in this last minute, so let's be brief, um, is, is this different? Are we at a different point right now, and is it more difficult? It is. It is. And look, you know, each side is experiencing this moment through the lens of its worst historical nightmare. For many Jews, October 7th was a kind of throwback to the Holocaust. And for Palestinians, this is a throwback to the Nakba. And I don't like either of those uh, historical analogies for this moment, but emotionally, that's what both sides are experiencing. Okay, we're going to have to take a break. And George, I'm going to come to you and have you answer that question after the break. We're discussing the unexpected friendship between an Arab and Israeli writer and how writing might help find each side's humanity in the conflict in the Middle East. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging 
in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. This hour, we're talking about the correspondence between an Arab and Israeli writer, and they've allowed us to listen to their first conversation. Our guests are Israeli writer Yossi Klein-Halevi. His latest book is titled Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Also with us, Egyptian-American author R.F. Georgie. He's uh, author of the book Absolution, a Palestinian-Israeli love story. And and before the break, uh, we were talking about... uh, uh, empathy. Both of you write about this in your books and finding a way to understand the narrative of someone with a completely different perspective and how that can help resolve conflicts, particularly the conflict between Israeli and Palestinians. And I asked Yossi uh, if it was different now, if it was different and difficult to find that sort of common ground after uh, the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. And Georgia, you did not get a chance to answer. I wonder how you think October 7th and the current events are are affecting the ability to compromise. Yes, at least from my perspective, you know, I'm, I'm not in government. All I can do is represent myself, hmm. is that um, we do need empathy and we, knew, we do need compassion. But this is one of those punctuated moments in history. And what I mean by that is it could either th- serve us as a powerful moment to explore peace, or it could make us retreat and become cold or frozen, right, and maintain the status quo. You see, Deborah, the status quo for over a century now, uh, that old paradigm does not work. It cannot work. When you debate someone about this conflict, right, yeah. I call, you have what I call ready-made syllogistic responses. You're going to make a point, I have my counter ready for you. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, in my novel, I created my character in the novel, Avi. Um, I made him brilliant, stunningly brilliant, and there was a reason for that. Because Avi had to undergo a transformation that no matter how clever you are, with your language and your defense, peace is far more simple. It is something that you can taste because Avi had to taste Palestinian food, right? It is something that you can feel. And, and so if I may, I just want to read something very briefly, if I may, Deborah. Well, certainly. This is from uh, uh, the opening of my novel. Peace is not determined by the signage of treaties or the wishes of leaders. Peace is not a discrete event. Rather, it is a renewable proposition filled with affirmations designed to mitigate against the collective distrust of two people who knew little beyond hatred, suspicion, blame and counterblame, intellectual gamesmanship, fear, paranoia, historical necessity, retribution, and a host of other deeply ingrained emotional projections that are constantly lurking beneath the surface. This summarizes that century right, of fear. Mm-hmm. or of hatred, and so on. This conflict, in my opinion, has two overarching frameworks. One is what I call representation, how we demonize the other side. And two, by the way, and this is going to come, you know, your listener might say, what? The other side of it 
is the digital age. Hmm. Explain that. And in my other novel, Notes from the Cafe, I explore how the digital age is changing us, which I think is very important. So when this conflict broke, it is filtered through misinformation, right? Misinformation, all right, lies, uh, conspiracy theories, and so on and so forth. The digital age today, right? We live in what I call a time of where ideas have become ephemeral, fleeting images, alternative facts, right? The very structure, the epistemic value of knowledge itself is under attack. And so to have this kind of discourse that Yossi and I are having, uh, and I want to simply say thank you to you and to NPR for allowing this to happen, because it does not happen. Mm. I wonder... uh... I wonder, Yossi, uh, what, what you say to some of those comments from Georgie. And also, I, I, I do want to hear that uh, both of you reflect on how you think writing and, and your roles as writers can help, especially when we're talking about the barrage of misinformation that people are getting from uh, social media that's, that's affecting our thoughts. Yossi, what do you say? Well, you know, listening listening to Georgie speak about um, how writers can can uh, can can help bring mutual empathy. Um, writing is really what brought me to an appreciation of the Palestinian side, and I went on a journey in the late 1990s, a, a two year journey into Palestinian society. And I was especially interested, as a religious Jew, I was especially interested in Palestinian Islam and Christianity. And so I spent those two years uh, traveling through the West Bank, Gaza, uh, parts of Israel, and encountering Palestinian stories. And and I wrote a book about it, and that, that was that was published 20 years ago. And that was the, the beginning, really, of, my, of what I would call a journey of, of hard empathy, because uh, it's, uh, at, especially at a moment like this, I, 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 I do feel that those parts of me are, are harder to access. But, uh, but what, I, what I think about, about writers in and, and, and conflict is that Writers are, are, are their own little tribe. You know, we, we, we belong to nations, cultures, religions, but we also belong to each other. And that's a, a transnational uh, identity. We, we, we recognize each other. We, we all have the same struggles, and we all, in, in sitting for, for many hours a day alone in a room, confronting our, the limitations of our, our creative abilities, and we all love stories, and writers are devoted to stories. And this conflict is really a conflict over stories. And the way that these stories, these, these two national narratives have been posited is as mutually exclusive stories. But for writers, stories are, are not mutually exclusive. Writers can have the ability to hold um, conflicting stories, it's 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 that's surrealism. That's that's the the uh, magical magical realism, 
there's and so there's there's something about the writer's process that allows you to hold mutually conflicting narratives. And what I tried to do in the letters book was write my story. These, this is my narrative. And then inviting Palestinians to write to, write to me about their counter-narrative and, and their criticisms of the book. And then I published those, those responses along with Georgie's mm-hmm. letter uh, in, the, in the next edition of the book so that it now modeled exactly what I feel a, a, uh, a writer's, uh, a writer's soul really is supposed to contain, which is multiple stories. And the stories don't have to fit neatly together. In fact, from a writer's perspective, uh, jarring stories are, are quite, quite honestly more interesting. So I, I was drawn to, understand the Palestinian narrative, first of all, out of curiosity, simply a writer's curiosity. I live next door to you and I don't know anything about you. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is, this is a conflict over narratives because both peoples, the Palestinians, the Israelis, or more broadly, the Arabs and the Jews, are peoples that live by their stories. Uh, it's not like Westerners who really are living more in the now, <laughs> Middle Easterners, and this is true both for Jews and Arabs, uh, live in, in in historical imagination. We're in constant um, we're in constant communication and struggle with our stories. And one of the mistakes, and I'll I'll stop here, but one of the mistakes that I feel the peace process made, the, the diplomats in charge of the peace process made in the past was that they tried to circumvent these two powerful nar- conflicting narratives. And this is not just a conflict about a line on the map. It's not just a conflict about tangible problems. It's about the intangibles of identity and history and memory and trauma and, and dreams and maybe the next time we try to make peace, we should think about bringing writers and poets and the- theologians and philosophers at the table along with, with diplomats. Georgie, what do you say to that? What do you say about those, those two powerful narratives and how writers influence, influence and might influence this? Mm-hmm. Yes, I, uh, I thank you for saying that, uh, you see, uh, you know, He's absolutely correct. It is a conflict of narratives. And as long as the narratives um, are defined or filled with uh, hatred and enmity and so on, uh, an enduring peace uh, simply cannot happen. Uh, You need overtures from both sides. And when I mean overtures, I don't mean sort of some false acknowledgement or inauthentic acknowledgement, right? You need to put yourself in the other's perspective. Can I give you an example? Briefly. The Holocaust. And here, leave it to an Egyptian to talk about the Holocaust, right? The Holocaust uh, was perhaps the greatest evil that befell human history. It was beyond anyone's comprehension and the scale of suffering, death, destruction. The Holocaust, and I I would like the Arab world to understand this, the Holocaust transmits to us, to this day, to Jews to this day, 
it transmits profound collective generational trauma. So that's an overture. The other, on the other side, the overture is, please acknowledge your Palestinian neighbors that are around you, that they are human beings. Acknowledge their humanity. And, 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 and I, I hate to use the terms right to self You know, I'm trying to come up with a new language, actually, mm. right? That they deserve something better than what it is today. That the Gaza, uh, Palestinians in Gaza, right, they have endured lives of quiet desperation. And I'm not going to, you know, get into whose fault it is. See, when we go back to that kind of thinking, right, this back and forth, peace is not possible. Right, but that's the predominant, right? Yes. That's the predominant thinking. That's the predominant dialogue. So, uh, you know... I don't know how you move away from that, especially when you're talking about the influence of social media, not just misinformation, but the way people's views are presented as well and, and how how differing views are just completely shut down. So, you know, I think you're, you're both in a, in a difficult spot, and I wonder if you feel like you're part of a, a very small group and, and whether you're getting any traction to these ideas of being able to listen and understand the other's viewpoint. Not now. Uh, this is a moment of, um, of where, where both sides feel they are in existential crisis and it's it's not a moment where people on either side can hear a a reasoned conversation, um, and I understand that. I understand that when you're when you're under assault, you know this this is a conversation that that is very hard for me, and even though I've been involved. In variations of this conversation for many years, it's very hard for me to have this now because I feel under multiple assault from so many directions. Mm. Uh, whether it's being accused of genocide, it's the the, the demonstrations around the world, uh, to say nothing of, of the threat of, of living next door to Hamas. But if that's difficult for me, imagine how difficult it is for people who haven't been exposed to the complexity of, of these, these interlocking narratives and, uh, and, and who didn't uh, and who weren't exposed to people of goodwill on the other side, uh, who for me are not, the, are not the other side. When, you know, I, I have partners in Georgia, you're certainly one of them. You're not on the other side. We may disagree. You may think that, and, and, and I know you do, that uh, Israel has overreacted. Uh, I think we don't have a choice. And yet here we are, we're still, we're still communicating because we are on the same side. Right. So let's and, let's end with a, an optimistic. That's a good. That's a good segue here. We've <laughs> got about yeah, a minute and a half. A minute and a half left, and I want both of you to say, just give me a few words on what it was like to finally have a conversation with each other, Georgie. To have a conversation with Josie, it it, it served 
to me as an affirmation that uh, peace is possible. You know, I am perhaps an eternal optimist, but to have peace, we have to embrace the other. And without that, you may sign various documents and treaties and whatever, but it's not going to work. Okay. Uh, the, the, a few seconds. The digital age, and I usually I go back to it, is because what we do today is we consume information. And whatever we consume, we, we, we go out on the streets and we lash out without having any substantive understanding of the history. Okay, Yossi, so I, I have to give Yossi a few seconds here before Absolutely. we end. Yossi, uh, really, really brief. Georgie is my friend, my brother, my partner, and having a conversation with you at this moment is is just liberating. It's liberating it's for honor, my soul. Yossi. It's an honor, Yossi. It's very mutual, and I'm just enormously grateful to, uh, to you and, uh, and to you, Deborah, for, for making this possible. Okay. Yossi Klein-Halevi, an Israeli writer, RF Georgie is an Egyptian-American author. You can find excerpts of their books at our website, onpointradio.org. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. <laughs>